Paul to Timothy, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Any of you who are familiar with uh, Rite One that we have at the Saturday evening service and the uh, uh, 8 o'clock service uh, might recognize this. It's in a series of what are called the comfortable words. Um, and uh, there are about four or five uh, verses from Scripture. And Thomas Cranmer, when he was uh, putting together uh, the Book of Common Prayer at the Reformation in England, uh, decided that the people needed to hear these comfortable words. After the confession and the absolution, these comfortable words come. But are they truly a comfort to us? Do we truly recognize quite the rescue that we have received? The only reason Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes incarnate is to save us from our sins that result in eternal death, but for his incarnation and his death on the cross. But unless we realize that we actually are sinners in need of saving, that gift doesn't quite seem that great. Do we really know that we are, each and every one of us, sinners in need of saving and therefore the gift that we've received? Or can we become a little bit like the Pharisees? They felt quite comfortable judging the sins of others, but were not so good about looking at themselves, for indeed they consider themselves quite righteous. You see, that's the thing. The minute we start looking at a hierarchy of sins, the minute we start thinking of other people's sins and compare our own and think, well, mine aren't quite as bad as that other person, we've already ended up in the camp of the Pharisees. I'm sure we can name those big sins, uh, murder, rape, extortion, taking advantage of the elderly, taking advantage of children. All of those big sins. But in actual fact, sin is our rebellion against God. Sin is actually saying to ourselves, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because it feels good to me. And that's putting the I in the middle of sin. It's actually displacing God from his rightful place in the center of our lives and replacing God by ourselves. Max Lucado puts it this way, sin is not an unfortunate slip or a regrettable act. It is a posture of defiance against a holy God. 
And John, in his first epistle, puts it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And Paul reiterates that. No one is righteous. In other words, no one is right before God. No one is without sin. No, not one. And then if we doubted that at all, both the Old Testament passage from Exodus and the passage from Psalms really hammers it home. Here are the Israelites having been brought out of slavery by the one true God, and Moses is gone away for a little bit, and they decide to gather together the jewelry, melt it down, make it into an animal, and then worship it. In a sense, that seems so ridiculous to us. But we worship things. The things that take the biggest amount of our attention are actually the things that we worship. And the corollary to that is, the adage is, is that we become that which we worship. And the psalmist says it quite plainly says, I've been a sinner, I've been wicked from birth, a sinner from my mother's womb. But then, they also go on to acknowledge that there is only one who can cleanse him from sin and us and delights in doing so. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses, Wash me through and through from my wickedness. Purge me from my sin and I shall be clean indeed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus is the answer to the psalmist's plea. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But here's yet the more gracious gift. The amazing abundance of God's riches and his grace is that he doesn't wait for us to clean up our act and get to him. We never would, of course. It's impossible for us to clean ourselves up. He comes looking for us. He never, ever, ever stops pursuing his lost children. If there is a family member or a friend who is heavy on your heart, who you want to, them to know the Lord deeply, that relationship that means so much to you, God's already pursuing them. And he'll never stop. That's really what the parables in today's gospel are about. You see, the Pharisees have made this purity boundary around themselves and says, we're really quite holy. And sinners may not come into our presence because if they do, well, um, they'll make us impure. And so they're looking down their nose at Jesus because he's having a party. And he's not having a party with the right people. He's having a party with the wrong people. 
He's having a party with tax collectors and sinners and not just one. He keeps doing it. And they're going, why are you sitting down with tax collectors and sinners? Why aren't you on our side of the fence in the pure place? And so these parables are an answer to that question by the Pharisees. Why are you partying? Why are you having a celebration? Why are you having table fellowship with these sinners over there? And so he tells these two parables. And in his graciousness, the Lord, there's actually a third one, which is the parable of the prodigal son, but we have these two right now. And do you see that Jesus tells two parables that will, uh, th- th- for, his, for his male and his female audience? The males in his audience, the men, are going to connect with this parable about the, the shepherd who goes looking for the one lost sheep. The women are going to completely associate with the other image about sweeping the floor, about taking a tiny little bit of light and looking in every nook and cranny for this lost coin because she's only got ten. She's not a wealthy person. That's a huge amount of money. And she's going to scour everywhere to find it as it's fallen into a crevice somewhere or other in her floor taking up furniture, looking everywhere, but listen in both of them, until they're found. That doesn't mean he goes, God goes looking and says, oh, I'm giving up on that one. It's just too much hard work. Until they're found. He never, ever gives up. Ever. Until our last breath, He will pursue his lost children. He is a pursuing God. Don't you love that about him? He just keeps after us. He keeps coming for us. Know this. There's no valley too deep, no mountain too high, no forest so thick, No desert so wide that will deter our pursuing God from looking for his lost children. He will have brambles thrown in his face. He will be scarred on his legs and his hands and his face and his back. And it will not deter him. He is always looking for his children. Whether he found you as a young child, whether he found you as a teenager, whether he found you as a young adult, whether he found you as a young parent, and we know how many children the Lord uses to find his lost children. Whether he found you in your middle years or in the winter of your life, he pursues and looks for his children 
to grasp them out of the jaws of eternal death. To release them from the power of sin. And if right now you are thinking, my sin is too great, he would not want me. Paul says, look at me. In fact, that's precisely why he places this passage in his letter to Timothy. He says, the riches of God's grace was given to me so that in me, the foremost sinner, the chief sinner. There was no sinner worse than me because he says I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a man of violence. He stood by and held the clothes while Stephen was stoned. He took letters and threw Christians in jail. But he says, this grace was given to me so that Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience. Making me, he says, an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. There is no sin so great that would prevent God from endlessly searching for his children. And when he finds them and when they turn to him, he's not there wagging a finger, tapping a foot in judgment, saying, finally, he's got his arms wide open. There's a party going on. That's why he's having parties with tax collectors and sinners. Because it's a mirror image of what's going on in the heavenly realm when one who is lost returns. I love a Christmas carol. I always, I used to read it, now I watch it in a movie. Every Christmas. I just love that. But what I particularly love is Fezziwig's Ball. Do you know Fezziwig's Ball? It's when he goes back in time, when Ebenezer has just gotten so into himself and his money is all that he thinks about and uh, the Spirit takes him back to his first work, to his first apprenticeship. And he's a, Fezziwig is a gentle master And every Christmas time, he stops work early and he clears out all of the tables and he brings in violin players and he and Mrs. Fezziwig have a great ball. And the violins are going and Fezziwig, who's a short, dumpy little man and his wife, are all like, and they're just dancing all up and down. That's what's happening in heaven when one who is lost is found. Can you imagine the party? It's like the biggest July 4th that you could ever imagine. The, the biggest New Year's Eve party that you've ever been at. That's what's happening in heaven when one who is lost is found. The angels are blowing their trumpets. There's a party going on when each and every single one of us 
said yes to God, that's what was happening in the heavenly realm. The angels got down on the biggest party. I've, I've maybe shared this with you before, but um, Frank Peretti is an author who's written a few books. This one is uh, called Piercing the Darkness. And I love it because uh, he sees into the spiritual realm of what is going on. The story is about a woman, Sally Bethrow, who has uh, gone off, uh, off track, off track during her life. And uh, the story picks up. She took a good long look at herself. She looked like a homeless vagabond. She was. She looked solitary and lonely. She was. She also looked small and insignificant in a very large world. What must she look like to a God big enough to have created this huge globe on which she was sitting, like a microbe on a microscope slide? How would he even find her? She placed her notebook in her lap and flipped to a page of notes she'd prepared. Um, hello. I imagine you know who I am, uh, but I'll introduce myself anyway. My name is Sally Beth Rowe. I guess you remember our last visit about 30 years ago at the uh, Mount Zion Baptist Church in Eureka, California. I suppose you're wondering why I broke off our relationship. I guess I was an angry young woman, and maybe I blamed you for my sorrows, but at any rate... I decided that I could take care of myself, and that's basically the way it went for most of my life. I'm sure you know the story. I tried atheism and then humanism, and that left me empty and my life meaningless. So then I tried cosmic humanism and mysticism, and that was good for many years of aimless delusions and torment. And to be honest, the mess I'm in right now, including the fact that I'm a convicted felon. You know all about that, I guess. I, I need to ask you about your love. I do know it's there. I need to know you'll... And Sally stopped. Tears were forming in the corners of her eyes. She wiped them away and took some deep breaths. Excuse me, this is difficult. There are a lot of years involved, a lot of emotion she took another deep breath. Anyway, I was trying to say that I'd very much like for you to accept me because I've been told that you love me and that you've arranged for all my wrongs to be paid for and forgiven. I know I've wronged you and I've ignored you and I've tried to be God myself. But if you will have me, if you will only accept me, I would be more than willing to hand over to you all that I am and all that I have, whatever it may be worth. Jesus, she couldn't stop the emotions this time. Her face flushed, her eyes filled, and she was afraid to go on. But she did go on, even as her voice broke and tears ran down her cheeks as her body began to quake. Jesus, I want, to, I want you to come into my heart. I want you to forgive me. Please forgive me. She was crying and she couldn't stop. But the heart of stone became a heart of flesh. The deepest cries of that heart 
became a fountain and no look into the heavenly realm. Above, as if another sun had just risen, the darkness opened and pure white rays broke through the treetops, flooding Sally Beth Rowe with a heavenly light, shining through to her heart, her innermost spirit, obscuring her form with a blinding fire of holiness. Slowly, without sensation, without sound, she settled forward, her face to the ground, her spirit awash with the presence of God. All around her, like spokes of a wondrous wheel, like beams of light emanating from a sun, angelic blades lay flat upon the ground, their tips turned toward her, their handles extending outward, held in the strong fists of hundreds of hundreds of noble warriors who knelt in perfect concentric circles of glory, light, and worship, their heads to the ground, their wings stretched skyward like a flourishing, animated garden of flames. They were silent, their hearts filled with a holy dread, as in countless times past, in countless places, with marvelous, inscrutable wonder, the Lamb of God stood among them. The Word of God, and more, the final word, the end of all discussion and challenge, the Creator and the truth that holds all creation together, most wondrous of all, the Saviour. A title the angels would always behold and marvel about, but which only mankind could know and understand. He had come to be the Saviour of this woman. He knew her by name and was speaking her name. He touched her. And her sins were gone. A rustling began in the first row of angels, then in the next, then like a wave rushing outward, the silken wings from row upon row of warriors caught the air, raising a roar and lifted the angels to their feet. The warriors held their swords heavenward, a forest of fiery blades, and began to shout in tumultuous joy, their voices rumbling and shaking the whole spiritual realm. Worthy is the Lamb! Worthy is the Lamb! Worthy is the Lamb! For he was slain. And one of the angels pointed his sword at Sally Bethro, prostrate, her face to the ground, still communing with her newfound Savior. And with his blood, he has purchased for God the woman, Sally Beth Rowe. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength 
and honor and glory and praise. Then came another roar from voices, from wings, and another flashing of hundreds of swords, and the wings took hold, and the skies filled with warriors swirling, shouting, cheering, worshiping, their light washing over the earth for miles. That happened when you turned to the Lord. Who brought you? Who came searching for you on the Lord's behalf? Maybe there was a Sunday school teacher, maybe a parent, maybe many people in the line who came searching for you, who the Lord sent looking for you to bring you home, to snatch you out of the jaws of eternal death and to give you the gift of eternal life probably got pictures of people right now but we also are to join with the good shepherd the one who goes searching for the lost to snatch those who are lost out of the jaws of darkness into glorious light so that that party keeps on going That's why Jesus sat down with tax collectors and sinners. Because he loves the party that goes on when one who is lost is found. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.